Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6? While you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. just want to start with a simple question. What is your vision of the good life? What does it look like to live a life well lived? We all form a concept of the good life in our minds from childhood. One of the simplest ways to get at it when speaking with children is by asking them what they want to be when they grow up. Believe it or not, when I was a boy, I didn't imagine myself standing in a place like this. When I was a boy, I imagined myself standing with a bat in my hand at home plate. It's what I wanted to be when I grew up. See, my conception of the good life was bound up with what I liked to do and what I thought I might like to have in the future. I wanted to play the game of baseball for a living, to make millions of dollars and receive praise from many. I never thought I might be one of those 200 hitters who received something other than praise, but never mind that. That seemed to be a life worth living to me. A few years ago, I asked a boy what he wanted to be when he grew up. He told me he wanted to be a professional video game player. I didn't know they had such things, but apparently it can be a very lucrative job. But the reasoning is the same. He wanted a job that was something he liked to do. He wanted to play a game for a living. He wanted to make a lot of money. And he wanted, the people, wanted people to watch him playing this game online. He wanted the praise of many. Some things change and some things stay the same. Our world gives us a vision of the good life, which is bound up in our possessions, money, food, cars, fame, popularity, and so on. And since the beginning of time, this has been true. Since our first parents took the fruit in the garden, hoping to gain what they did not have, humans have believed this lie. And it's a believable deceit because it rests in a kernel of truth. You see, the good life is found when we possess a certain kind of wealth, a certain kind of food, a certain kind of affirmation. However, it's not found in possessing the versions of wealth and food and fame that the world can give. It's found in possessing the wealth and food and fame that comes from God, our Heavenly Father. That's the kind that lasts forever. And this is what Luke will show us today as we come to Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. The good life is found through faith in Christ and in the kingdom that He brings. It may not always appear to be good in our present circumstances, but it will be evident in eternity that the way of blessedness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So in the passage before us, our Lord Jesus will invite us to see this and embrace this perspective of the good life. If you found your place then, would you follow along with me in Luke 6, beginning in verse 20, as I read to verse 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you 
when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Father in heaven, we pray as we have so often prayed this morning that you would give us wisdom to see that the blessed life is found in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to see as we hear and receive your word, to see through our present reality, our present difficulties, our present sorrows, our present lack, to see through this and to see that you have stored up something glorious for us in heaven. And already we are beginning to enjoy the goodness that you have stored up for us, not because of anything that's within us, but because of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Help us to see this this morning, O Lord. Open our eyes that we may see. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by talking about what a beatitude is. And here I'm going to give you a bit of an orientation by pointing you back in the Scriptures to Psalm 1. So if you would turn there while I make some comments to Psalm 1, we're going to see what a beatitude is. A beatitude is a statement that speaks about a person who is blessed and gives the reason, typically, why that person is blessed. There's a who and there's a why in every beatitude. We see Beatitudes very frequently in the Scriptures, in the Old and the New Testament. You can't always look to the word bless in English because we use that word to translate two terms. But very often when you see it as a uh, description of a person, this kind of person is blessed, then you know you're dealing with a Beatitude. And you'll find roughly 50 of those in the Old Testament. Twenty-six of them are in the Psalms, and seven of them are in the Proverbs, because these kinds of statements are a, a wisdom statement, the kind of statement that was typical of a wise person, whereby a wise person would say to someone, this is the kind of life that is blessed. This is the kind of life that is wise. That's why we see them so frequently in the Psalms and Proverbs. They were Phrases that would have been used by many who were called sages, many of the wise men in the ancient world. But biblical wisdom gives us a different perspective on what's the good life. It's a perspective that's framed in light of eternal realities. And you'll see that as we look very quickly at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The very first psalm begins with this statement, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We see a picture of who is blessed at the very beginning of the Psalms, and it's a person who delights in God's word, a person who's made his hope and his trust in God, that he's trusted in God's word, that it is the source of what is good for him, and he delights in it, and he meditates on it. He makes it his love and his joy. That is a blessed man. He's not the man who delights in what the wicked say is wonderful and delightful. He's not the man who goes the way of the wicked. And we'll see as we look down in Psalm 1 why this is. The rest of this psalm gives us the reason. The man who trusts God's word is like a tree. He finds stability. He's planted by streams of water. He is fruitful. He finds that God's word for him is a source of life. And so he lives 
fruitfully in this life and in the life to come. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff, something that can just blow away in the wind. Here's the reason why that's not the blessed way. This is a picture of one who rejects God's way in unbelief. And Psalm 1 concludes with a note about a coming judgment. In verse 5 and 6, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. To see this picture of the blessed life, the psalmist points us to eternity and points us to a day that is coming, a day of judgment, so that we might see that this indeed is the blessed life both now and forever. And Psalm 2 does the same thing. It just puts it on a cosmic scale, on an international scale, with this picture of nations and rulers and kings who rage against the Lord and conspire against His anointed, against His Christ. And look at how Psalm 2 concludes. The final word is going to be another beatitude. But beginning there in Psalm 2, verse 10, the psalmist calls the kings of the earth, the rulers of nations, to be wise, saying, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so the very first two psalms set out a picture of the blessed life that is rooted in God's Word and rooted in faith in His Son. When the psalmist wrote this, he was looking forward to the coming of that Son, one who was appointed by God to be the judge of the nations, who would judge the nations with a rod of iron. And he called his readers and his hearers to see that the good life, the blessed life, both now and forever, is a life that is lived with this eternal perspective. We don't have time this morning to look at every single beatitude in the Old Testament. But I would submit to you that if we looked at them and thought deeply about each one of them on its own, we would see that they all rest either explicitly or implicitly in this eternal perspective. They only make sense if we understand that this life is not all there is. That there is a day coming when God will set every wrong right. When God will do what is just. And God will show grace to His people and reverse the fortunes of His people as they suffer now and hope for that eternal blessedness that He promises us in Christ. That's what we see at the head of the Sermon on the Plain as Jesus speaks here in Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Jesus turns on its head the expectation of a world that in His day and in our day thinks that blessedness is found in this life and what we can have in this life. We think that the good life is about having things. We do this every day when we think about how we plan our future. For instance, we might say if we were to write our own Beatitudes and fill in the blanks of the who's and the why's. Blessed is the man who saves enough money that he can retire early. 
and go deep-sea fishing for the rest of his days from 55 onward. That's how many of us would write a beatitude or in days past might have done so. Or a child might say, blessed is the kid who can get a million followers on their internet channel and make a million bucks before they're 18. There are kids like that these days, and there's an allure to that. Children, I just tell you that some of those here who are older don't have a clue what I'm talking about. And that should be enough to show you that maybe that's not really the good life. But that's what we hope for. That's what we want. We think that the good life is about what we have here and now. And it's not. Jesus would orient our perspective to eternity and to himself. Notice who he addresses in the very beginning when he speaks these beatitudes. He lifts up his eyes on his disciples before he speaks. It's important that we see this qualifier. He is speaking to those who are following him. The way that Matthew sets up his beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to his disciples and to the crowds. And there the beatitudes are phrased a little differently so that the qualification is still there. But we need to see this here in Luke because Luke doesn't incorporate all of the detail. In this particular context, Jesus doesn't speak with all of the detail that we're used to in Matthew. Here he doesn't speak of the poor in spirit, but he speaks of the poor. But we need this qualification that he's speaking to his disciples. So you could say, blessed are the poor among his disciples. Blessed are the hungry among his disciples. We need to see that all of this blessedness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just there in verse 20. You see it there in verse 22 as well. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Why do they do this? On account of the Son of Man. Because you're associated with Him. Because you are found in Him. Because you are one of His disciples and following faithfully after Him. Because you've received Him by faith and believed the gospel that He proclaimed and that His disciples proclaimed. There's blessedness for you. But you won't always see it in this life. Which is why we have Beatitudes like this. See, Jesus acknowledges that among his disciples, there will be many who are poor. There will be many who hunger. There are many who will suffer want, who will lack good things. And Jesus is not saying that they are blessed because they are poor. You see, there's a lot of ways in which we can misread the Beatitudes. We might read it like this. Blessed are you because you're poor. Blessed are you because you're hungry. Blessed are you because you weep now. But that's not what Jesus says. You see, poverty in and of itself is not a good thing. It's not something that we want or should desire. Neither is hunger. Neither is persecution in and of itself a good thing. No one is blessed because of those things. To, to think otherwise would be just another kind of works. You can imagine, for example, a self-righteous Pharisee coming to God and saying, look at all the good, righteous things that I've done. Don't I deserve your favor and your blessing? We could reverse that and say, look at these rags that I wore all my life. I did that for you, Lord. Doesn't that mean I deserve your blessing because I did this for you? No, Jesus is not saying, blessed are you because you're poor. Blessed are you in spite of your poverty, in spite of your hunger. 
in spite of the difficulties that you face in this life, you are blessed if you are found in Christ. And the reason, is, the reason that he gives us is because we enjoy a present benefit and we have a future hope. I want you to see what we have presently. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of God will be yours. Because Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom has come. We saw that all the way back in Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And as we scan back down and remind ourselves, in verse 43... Jesus told the people who would have kept him in Capernaum, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent by God to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, and the kingdom has come, but it has not come in its fullness. Sometimes we use the language of already, but not yet. We already enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. And in Jesus' life, we can see some of those things as he goes about healing and giving people the kind of life that they will enjoy most fully, that all his people will enjoy most fully in the resurrection, relieving the things that ail them in this fallen world. We see a foretaste of those kingdom realities. As he feasts with sinners and tax collectors, we see a foretaste of a more glorious banquet that we will all enjoy with Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God, our Maker in our presence. But we already enjoy the foretaste of that. The kingdom has already come, even if we don't experience it in our fullness. And if we are found in Christ, this kingdom is ours. So we are blessed Now, I want to say something about the poor here. See, some of us probably hear this and say, well, I'm not actually poor in economic terms. And Luke just says, blessed are you who are poor. But remember that qualifier. He's speaking to Jesus' disciples. And many of the disciples are poor. But we see in the New Testament that not every single one of Jesus' disciples is poor in economic terms. See, Paul would later say, not many of you, to the Corinthians, not many of you were wise in this world, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were of noble birth. But he didn't say, not any of you. He wrote a letter to Philemon, a wealthy man who had a church in his home, who was an owner of property and things. And there were many, I shouldn't say many relatively speaking, but there were people in the early church who experienced that kind of wealth. And Jesus is not excluding them, saying, you're not blessed because you have those things. Your, the problem is, if you think that those things are somehow the sign that you are more faithful, somehow you're trusting in the things you have as the sign that God has judged you righteous and therefore you have these present blessings, you're trusting and hoping in the things that you have, then Jesus' word to you in verse 24 is, woe to you who are rich. We see the example of that in Luke of the Pharisees who loved their wealth and trusted in their self. They trusted in their own righteousness. They are the example that Jesus holds forward, or that that Luke holds forward, of the woeful rich. 
But there were people in the early church who had means. But they learned not to trust in their means and not to hope in those means. And if those means should be taken away from them, and they should become impoverished in this world, they'd think it no big deal. We can see that, for example, in the book of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews, he wrote to the people, saying, You had compassion on those in prison, and you had joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. There were people in the early church who lost their property. They had it taken away from them either destroyed or stolen, because they were Christians. And they rejoiced in that, because they counted it nothing in comparison to the abiding possession they had, because they knew what Jesus had taught, the kingdom of God belonged to them. So whether they had economic means, or whether they lost the, all that they had, whether they never had anything, they recognized that all of their wealth, all of their real and true and lasting wealth was not stored up here, but was stored up for them in heaven and would come to them through Christ. That's who the poor are in Luke's gospel. Those who have come to the end of themselves and recognized that they have nothing that they can bring to a holy God that will commend them to God. It's like we'll sing... In the third verse of our final hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Ultimately, this is the poverty that we all share in common. What Matthew calls a poverty of spirit, a humility that issues forth in repentance, recognizing that we have nothing good within ourselves that commend, can commend us to a holy God, that we are poor in every way that matters. Now, very often in this world, and the reason why Jesus addresses the poor broadly, is very often in this world, it's easier to see that when you're actually economically poor too. It's easier to see your need for God and for His provision when you don't have anything. We'll see that in parables later in Luke. There will be rich fools who store up their wealth and say, I'm well supplied. I have no need. And Jesus will call that person a fool. There will be self-righteous Pharisees who mock Jesus when He teaches them not to love riches and not to serve money as your master telling them you can't serve both God and money, and they'll mock him, and they'll laugh at him. Because in their riches and in their wealth, they will be deluded into thinking somehow they have in themselves the thing that commends them to God that makes them righteous. To them, Jesus issues a word of woe. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. What a bitter thing to hear you have already received your consolation. Remember in Luke chapter 1, that word consolation, where we heard it? Let me just turn you back there to Luke 1 and to Luke 2. The way that Mary in her Magnificat, and then later the way that we saw with Simeon, how they spoke about the consolation that God would give His people when He intervened to save them. Mary in her Magnificat, 
And that great hymn in Luke 1, verse 46 and onward said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. She spoke of God's mercy to those who fear Him. And then this is how she described it. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich He has sent away empty. How has He done this? He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He did this by intervening to save his people by sending the Christ. That's how God began to fill his people with good things. And Mary recognized it. And Simeon and Anna too. We saw that in Luke 2, verse 24. Excuse me, in verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And later we saw with Anna, in verse 36 of Luke 2, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak, to, speak of Him. That's of Jesus. Speak of Jesus to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's the same idea, that idea of redemption and of a consolation. God's people in, that, in those narratives... Those who were faithful, who were trusting, were waiting for God's consolation. And Mary recognized it and said, God is now doing that saving work whereby He will fill the hungry with good things. And here Jesus comes and He begins to speak to His disciples. And He says, you're blessed because the kingdom of yours and you will be filled with good things. You will be satisfied. But to those who are rich and who trust in their riches, you've got your consolation already. That's what you want. You've got your salvation. That's what you think it is. And you know what? It won't last. You can't take it with you when you're gone. You can't have it again in eternity. It's all nothing. For those who put their hope in this life, on the things of this life, all Jesus has are words of woe. But for those who... Look to Him and trust in what He offers and the promises that He gives. His word to you, to us, is blessed are you. For you have a kingdom and you will be satisfied. There is a future satisfaction that will come. There is a future filling that will come so that whatever we experience in this life, be it poverty of any sort, be it hunger of any sort, It will not last forever. That's what Mary spoke about in her great song. God was going to work a work of reversal. Indeed, He'd already begun to do that work. And here Jesus speaks about it too. God will bring about a final and complete reversal. 
We will see it on that day when Christ returns. On that day when those who were hungry among His disciples will never hunger again. And it won't just be because we have cheeseburgers and french fries. It won't just be because there's a huge banquet that we can eat physical food. But everything that we long for in this life will be satisfied. If you are one of Christ's disciples, you surely long for righteousness and justice in the earth. We prayed about some of those things this morning as we reflected on some of the things that are happening in our country and in our culture as we prayed. There is a day when God will put all the wrongs to right and we hunger for that day and God assures us we will be satisfied because we have a king in Christ who is perfectly wise and he will bring in an everlasting righteousness, everlasting justice. He will accomplish that finally and fully on the day of his return. So we hope in that day and we look forward to that future satisfaction knowing that we are blessed, not because we're hungry, but because we will be satisfied by Him. The same is true for those who weep now. If you say, I'm not poor, I'm not hungry, this one grabs us all into the fold. We all have causes for weeping in this life. We all experience real sorrow, the loss of loved ones, children who are grown and wandering from the Lord. We all experience those sorrows in this life. God doesn't necessarily promise that all of those sorrows will be reversed exactly as we would like to see it. But He does promise us that our weeping will come to an end. We will have a day when we laugh, when we have joy. We will have a day when all our tears are wiped away because of Christ and what He brings and the promises that He ushers in in Himself and through Himself. So He says, look at life with this perspective. Respond to these statements that serve as invitations, that invite us to see the good life, the life that is blessed, is a life that is found in Him, in spite of whatever suffering we might experience in this life. And we see in this passage too, that there's a particular kind of Difficulty that we will face in this life, a difficulty that is characterized by persecution. Now, sometimes when I bring up persecution, you might say, well, we don't really experience persecution in this life. Not in this country, anyway. If we look across the seas to other countries, we can read about people who are imprisoned, who lose all their property, people who suffer in great and difficult ways. But look at the way that Jesus describes the persecution that his people will face. Blessed are you when people hate you. Are Christians in America ever hated? Surely we are. Surely we are by many who hate us, who exclude us. It may be a little thing in our estimation when we compare ourselves to those who suffer overseas and countries that are far more hostile to the gospel in terms of power and force. But it's a real persecution. People are excluded every day in this country and in our community because of their faith in Christ. People are reviled. People are made fun of. People are spurned. And they're called evil. This is something that really happens in our life. 
in our day. It used to be that Christians were regarded simply as a bunch of self-righteous people, just a bunch of people who were goody-two-shoes. But nowadays, simply read the mainstream newspapers. Christians are not spurned as people who are self-righteous. Christians are spurned as positively evil. They would say that we are bigots because we don't embrace every kind of moral decision that the world puts before us. This is what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are you, he says, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, because of your association with Christ, because you say, I don't care what the world says. I'm going with Him. I'm going to believe His Word. I'm going to receive that as what's true and good and right. The world will hate you, and he says, they've done this before. It's not the first time the world has hated God's people. He's pointed us to our present. We possess the kingdom. He's pointed us to our future. We will be satisfied. We will have joy. Now he points us both to the future and the past, saying, rejoice in that day, that is the day when we experience these things, these persecutions, these difficulties, leap for joy. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. He points us even further onward to our heavenly hope, and then he points us back to history and says, they did the same thing to the prophets, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And they were true prophets of God. So if you need encouragement to endure persecution, look to their examples. Look to what we read this morning about Joseph and his example of suffering for the sake of righteousness. And ultimately look to Christ, who endured the cross for our sake, who endured such suffering, and yet that was not the end for him, and showed us ultimately that even if they should take our lives That's not the end. That doesn't negate the blessedness he proclaims. In fact, the very reason why we are blessed is because he went to the cross, because he endured that persecution for our sake, so that we might be saved, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be brought back into fellowship with the one from whom all blessings flow. There is blessedness in a life following Christ. It is a good life, both now and for eternity. It doesn't always look that way to the watching world. and It doesn't always feel that way in our experience of life. But our Lord assures us that it is so. Now, I would be remiss if I concluded there. I said a little bit about woe, but I must say a little bit more about woe. You see, sometimes we want to shy away from this message. Sometimes we don't want to speak about the reality of judgment. Yet each of these Beatitudes has a corresponding woe. Each one, all four of them are balanced by a woe. And these words of woe, not so much at home in the wisdom literature like words of blessedness, not so much at home in the Psalms like the Beatitudes, More at home in the words of the prophets. You see them very frequently in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And always they speak of the coming woe that will be experienced by those who reject God's ways. There's a woe spoken unto them. 
But we want to shy away from this message because we think somehow it is harsh. Somehow it is unkind to speak of judgment. And yet we should consider and be reminded that no one spoke more often of hell in the New Testament than our Lord Jesus Himself. And He didn't speak of hell and of judgment and of woe because He was cruel and heartless. No, He spoke of these things because of His great love for us. For in every woe there is a word of warning. He spoke of these things because they are true. It will not do to say there is a heaven and say there is no hell. There is heaven and there is hell. There is salvation and there is judgment. There is blessing and there is cursing. There is blessedness and there is woe. And you see the perfect balance of these blessedness, these beatitudes and these woes here. Four and four. You'll see that as we unfold Luke's gospel. There are 15 Beatitudes in Luke's gospel scattered throughout. There are 15 woes in Luke's gospel, not always together. There are 13 Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. There are 13 woes in Matthew's gospel. Even in the book of Revelation, there are seven Beatitudes in Revelation. And there, the word woe occurs twice as many times, 14 times, but that's because it gets doubled up a lot. There are seven woes in Revelation. There's a balance to these things that our Lord proclaimed in His Word. We must recognize them, not because we're cruel and heartless, but because there really is a judgment. There really is an eternal judgment. There really will be woe for those who reject Christ. They may experience fullness and wealth and laughter now, But it will not always be the case unless they repent and trust in Christ. And that's true for every one of us. We must repent of our sin. We must put our faith in Jesus Christ, who died for us, who took all of our woe upon Him on the cross, who took all of God's righteous judgment upon Him on the cross, so that we, by faith, might be forgiven of our sins, And our sins might be atoned for. But we have to repent and believe this gospel. And that's true for those in our community, those in our families, those in our world. Many will reject this message of woe. But we must not reject it. Jesus did not merely deliver a message of blessedness. He delivered a message of woe. The blessedness that He spoke of should serve as an invitation, an invitation to come to Him by faith. The woe that He spoke of should serve for us as a warning not to neglect this salvation that He has promised us, that He offers us in Christ. Of course, as we come to the end of it, we must remind ourselves, all of this only makes sense if we adopt the perspective that we spoke about last week and will continue to speak about again and again. If we adopt that eternal perspective that recognizes that this life is not all there is. This life will end for every one of us. Either God will call us home or Christ will come again. But there is a life that lasts forever. Unless we see all of reality through this perspective and frame our thoughts on in this way, we will not see 
that this indeed is the blessed life, the life to which our Savior has called us. But if we look at it the way that Mary did, the way that Jesus did, the way that Jesus taught His disciples, then we will see and we will believe and we will understand indeed that we are blessed, not because of anything that we have done or anything that is within us, but because of Christ and what He's done for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see the goodness of the life to which you've called us. And we also think particularly of friends and family members who are struggling to see that, who are chasing a different kind of life, not a life of faith and faithfulness, but a life that finds the joys of this world, the deceptive joys, too much to pass up. People who see their friends and their peers going a different way and seeming to have a good life. Father, we pray that you would help us to call them back to this blessed life to which you've called us. We pray that you would help us to share the gospel clearly with them. More than this, Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts and their minds to open their eyes, that they might see the goodness of a life that is founded on your word and is fixed in faith on the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray this morning. Amen.